And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 9 to 15 today as we continue in the story of Gideon. Gideon is the fifth of the 12 judges that are mentioned in this book. And you remember the Lord appeared to Gideon and gave him this great task to deliver uh, the people from their bondage to Midian, these hordes of nomadic tribesmen that were coming in at harvest time and eating all of their food. And uh, Gideon has been a reluctant deliverer. And so God has been working with Gideon. And we've seen how God's appeared to him. God's reassured him through some miraculous signs. God uh, stripped his army down. Uh, Gideon was able to rally 32,000 soldiers. But God had said, that's too many soldiers. I want to do a great work. And so he whittled that number down to 300. And so now we see Gideon just uh, on the eve of the battle. And God's continuing to work with him. Uh, Let's give attention to God's word, starting at Joshua 7, verse 9. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion, uh, companion sorry, answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we think about it this evening. Well, after the dessert auction last night, and it's probably an appropriate a story to tell, but I had read an article earlier this week about a woman who made a from-scratch cake for her husband's birthday, and she'd never done that before. She'd always made her cakes out of a box mix, and so she, so she decided, I'm going to uh, go all out here, do something special for my husband, and as uh, they had some other families over, uh, so she uh, made the cake. It looked great, uh, put it on the plates, took it, uh, to the uh, the men, I guess, were all talking, you know, together. And then she went back into the kitchen, and she could hear them uh, sort of coughing and sputtering and uh, saying, trying to say, oh, this is unusual kind of things about the cake. And then she took a taste of it herself and realized she must have left out a critical ingredient and that it was terrible. And she said that experience led her to not try to make another cake from scratch for 20 years. 
And then she said during COVID, and they were all locked in together, uh, she decided to try to make a cake from scratch. And it was great. And so for 20 years, she did not do something that she could have done uh, simply because she was afraid. And it's a good reminder that uh, when we are afraid of things other than God, when, when things get our attention more than God, it can sometimes paralyze us in terms of how we serve God. Uh, some have said that we are prone to worshiping what we fear the most. And so if we fear poverty or uh, lack of security, we worship our job. And if we fear loneliness, we might worship uh, a relationship. If we fear uh, ineffectiveness or weakness. We worship uh, physical health and exercise. Um, If we fear embarrassment, then we don't try anything new. We just never put ourselves in that kind of a situation. Now Gideon here is facing a genuine threat, an army of 135,000. And he has 300 soldiers at his disposal. And if he's going to succeed at this, he has to fear God and reverence God more than he fears this great horde that he's going against. And what God does in this passage is work in Gideon's life so that Gideon, in fact, does fear God more than he fears the Midianites. And and we're actually going to see a turning point in this story in terms of Gideon's leadership. And and we see from this something that we each of us need to see ourselves. And that is that we are not to fear the powers of the world, but rather we are to fear God and worship him alone. And uh, Lord willing, as we look at this passage, we'll see how that works out. And you children, if you're going to draw a picture for me, you could draw a picture of this dream uh, that the Midianite soldier has about a loaf of bread. Uh, That seems like a very strange dream, but then listen uh, what the significance of that is and what God is doing with that dream. So the first thing I want us to notice, and and uh, these points you can find in the outline that's in the bulletin, is that God's word should be enough to convince you to fear him above all else. Uh, God's been patiently working with Gideon. Uh, from the moment that God has appeared to him, Gideon has been a man who is afraid. Remember, he was, he was hiding as he uh, beat out his grain in fear of the Midianites. And God has given him this great charge. Through your hand, Midian, I'm going to deliver the people. And Gideon's resisted this. Uh, uh, God has worked to, uh, to increase his faith and to encourage him. And so now we're at the moment of truth. It's, it's go time, as they would say in verse 9. Uh, the Lord comes to him and says, Arise and go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Remember, they're camped up uh, on the, the, the slopes of Mount Gilboa, and down below is the, uh, the great horde in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, but the text also tells us that Gideon is still afraid. And uh, Gideon is up there seeing this vast horde, and he's thinking, 
I can't do this with 300 men. It's, it's not possible. Now, remember, we said before that the whole point of God reducing his army down to 300 men was so he would know absolutely that he couldn't do it and that God was going to have to do it. But the fact is that Gideon is afraid. And he's really faced with a challenge. Are you going to believe what God says in his word, or are you going to believe your eyes? Uh, Another way to, to say this is, are you going to fear God more than the powers that you are facing in the world? And I think we can all agree, you know, from the safety of our seats, that God's word to Gideon should have been enough. It should have been enough for God to say to him, Arise, it's time to go down. I am going to deliver them into your hand. That should have been enough. But the fact is, it wasn't enough. And it wasn't a defect in God, right, or God's word. It's a defect in Gideon's faith. And this is where, again, the real battle is taking place. And while we might want to criticize Gideon, we need to remember that God's word to you and to me should be enough. Uh, for us to know that we don't have to be afraid of the things that we face in the world, that we fear God more than anything else. And yet God's word often isn't enough for us as we face the different things that challenge us. And so this is why we're constantly wrestling with trying to accommodate our culture and its mores into our own thinking. We want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. This was what the, the adult Sunday school lesson about Vanity Fair earlier was. Like these Christians come into the situation and they stand out. Their priorities are different. The way they live is different. And that makes them targets. And this is what life is like in this world for those who would seek to fear God. And his word tells us. He's with us. This is what we were talking with, with the children about that he is greater than all things, that he's with us, that nothing can happen to us apart from his will. And that's all right there in his word. And yet we still find ourselves fearing the powers of the world that are telling us what we must believe, what we must say, what we must do if we want to avoid their wrath. God's word should be enough. In Gideon's case, and sadly often in our case, it's not enough. So secondly, we see God is gracious to teach you to fear him as you should. Again, God's amazing patience and grace. He just doesn't say, hey, I said it, believe me. He goes and comes to Gideon to try to help him. And so in verse 10, but if you are afraid, and clearly he was, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. So he tells them, here's what you do. You take your friend down. So he's going to have a witness to whatever he sees. There's a second person there to affirm what he sees. And it's interesting in this, in this interaction, it's almost as if there's two men representing Israel, and then there's these two men representing the Midianites, the two men that are discussing the dream. And they're going to be the players in this drama. And God says to him uh, in verse 11, he says, he says, go down and you shall hear what they say and afterward your hands shall be strengthened. Uh, So he tells them, you're going to get some intelligence that's going to help you deal with your fear. So God is in the business of encouraging and strengthening the hands of his people. And I want you to realize God wants you to be 
uh, strong in your faith. He doesn't want you doubting. Uh, the entire book of 1 John was written to believers so that they would have confidence in their faith. I put the key verse from 1 John in your outline, 1 John 5.13, where John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know these things. That's the whole purpose of the book. God is in the business of assuring his people and building their confidence to teach us to fear him as we should. Now recognize, if you love someone, and you know this, you want that person to be assured of your love. Whether that person is a, is a child, or a parent, or a spouse. If, if, if you're healthy, right, you want the person not guessing all the time, uh, does he really love me or not? That's not healthy. Uh, you, you, want, you go out of your way to reaffirm your love for the people that you love. You don't want anyone you love questioning whether you love that person or not. And so if, if we can understand that, how much more should we appreciate that this is God's attitude toward you if you're one of God's children and he loves you and he wants you to know that he loves you. That's not some mystery, oh, see if they figure it out. He wants you to know that he loves you and that you don't have anything to fear. And so God is in the business of reminding you of these things. And how does he do it? Well, he, he does it through his word. He does it as you come and worship. He does it as you encourage one another, as you live in the body of Christ. He does it as you seek him in prayer. He does it through the sacraments. These are why all of these things are so essential to us, because God is constantly reminding us of his love for us as we participate corporately in the life of the body. So God is gracious to teach you to fear him as you should. Thirdly, we see here that one of the ways God teaches you by ex is by exposing the weaknesses in the things that you fear. So this is interesting what God does. In verse 11, they come down to the outskirts of the camp. So these are sort of the the, uh, the special troops that are on guard on the outside of this giant camp of the Midianites down in this valley. And when they come down, uh, they happen across a couple of soldiers who are talking. But as they come down, notice verse 12 highlights what the site is. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So this is what it looks like. Okay, from Gideon's perspective, this great multitude of soldiers, they have camels. Uh, the Israelites do not. 300 foot soldiers against an army that's riding on camels has absolutely no hope. And so this is fear-inducing. And so what we're not saying here is that there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, the, the text is emphasizing, oh yes, there's something to be afraid of. Gideon's fear is totally rational. Uh, so children, this is sharks. This is tornadoes that, uh, that, the, that Gideon is seeing. These, these are real dangers that we should be concerned about. They're not just imaginary ones. And God is, 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 like, is, is making that clear. And, and this is the way it is in our world, right? There are real dangers that you face for your faith. 
you might actually lose your job uh, for taking a particular stance today. You might be canceled. Uh, You might face friction in your family. These these are real dangers that you face. And so there there is reason to be concerned about the powers that are at work in our world. So that's the first part of this. But then what does God do? God pulls back the curtain and shows Gideon what this great power looks like from his perspective. And, and this has the effect of showing Gideon the inherent weakness in the enemy that he faces and the enemy of God. And, and so the way this works is God sends this dream. In verse 13, Gideon comes down, there's a man, a soldier, telling a dream to his companion. Uh, He says, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp and came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Uh, That's kind of a fascinating dream. I don't know if that would get much thought, but it must have been very vivid. Uh, And and so the one man says, this vivid dream, this rolling bread uh, comes down. Not a huge rock, not a boulder, not an avalanche, a loaf of bread comes down and hits the tent. And so then the second soldier, he's ready to interpret. And he says in verse 14, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So he hears this dream and he says, well, this common barley bread loaf, this poor man's bread, this is this no-name guy Gideon no one's ever heard of and his 300 soldiers And they're going to come rolling down this hill, and they're going to hit this army tent, which represents the nomadic Midianites who are camped there, eating up all the produce. And the bread is going to to completely obliterate the tent. So that's the interpretation of the dream, that this this, uh, little little group of soldiers is going to uh, wipe us out. And Matthew Henry, I put this in your outline, uh, speaking about this, says he and his army, that is Gideon, were as inconsiderable as a cake made of a little flour, as contemptible as a barley cake, hastily got together as a cake suddenly baked on the coals, and as unlikely to conquer this great army as a cake to overthrow a tent. And and yet this is exactly what God intends to do with Gideon and his soldiers. This will be a victory for Gideon, and as the Midianite says, it's a, a victory for Gideon's God, most importantly. So do you see what God's doing here? From Gideon's perspective, as he comes down the hill, the Midianites are invincible. There's no way. And then when he gets up close and he overhears this conversation, he realizes that they're terrified. Gideon is living rent-free in their heads. How, How else can you explain that this random dream about bread and tents is interpreted in such a way that it's all about Gideon. So clearly, they know Gideon's out there, and they're convinced that he, he's got a real fighting force. And for the first time in seven years, they're going to be opposed now, and this is going to be a serious problem. And so this bizarre dream is a way of God showing Gideon this thing that you fear, which is, is indeed a scary thing, is not nearly as strong as you think it is. And I think that's a helpful way to think about how God God often helps us in our own circumstances. 
I, I read a, an article, a long-form article last week about the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest evangelical uh, Protestant uh, church group in, in the country, 13 million members. I think it's like 47,000 churches. It, it's huge. And the article was about a pastor at a church in Virginia who wrote to the executive committee, uh, whatever, the, however their, their structure works, to ask a simple question. Can Southern Baptist churches ordain women pastors? It says we can't. It says we shouldn't, but can we? And the article was about how that pastor still hasn't gotten an answer to that question. And in fact, what's happened at the denominational level is this whole thing has been turned into a referendum on Rick Warren out at Saddleback Church, who has several uh, female pastors at his church. And you probably saw that on the news, Saddlebacks being uh, disfellowshipped. Well, that's the discussion. But they've never answered the question. And this pastor was interested because just in his little area in in Virginia, there were lots of churches ordaining female pastors in the SBC. And And the author went on to explain the fact that this has happened without fail in the Protestant church in this country is ignoring what God's word says about pastors then inevitably leads to ignoring what God's word says on a whole other list of issues, all the LGBT issues and all the other issues, without fail. And sure enough, you can see this creeping in to the SBC now, uh, that this this is happening. And why is it happening? The church wants to be liked. We want to be loved. We, we have to go along with our society. We, we don't want to face down our, our society. We want to meld in with it and fit in with it. And this pressure on the church is constant. It's constant. But sometimes God pulls back the curtain and shows you just how ridiculous what you're fighting against is. And that happened just in the last couple of weeks when a 26-year-old man became the public face of sports bras for Nike. A person without breasts is being paid millions of dollars to advertise sports bras. And although that's troubling and, 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 and uh, it, it's showing the move to cancel women in our culture, it's so crazy that it reminds you that this whole thing that we're fighting against is at its core absurd. It's absurd. And, and this is an effective way that the Lord uses to help you remember that you don't need to fear the powers in your world that are telling you what you must believe and what you must say and who you must affirm and how you must do it. Because in his eyes, they're all ridiculous. That he is the one that we are to fear. And you need to think about how this works out in your own life and how people are putting pressure on you to say or do or to believe certain things. And just remember what happened for Gideon here. God just pulls back the curtain a little bit 
Let me show you this great army you're terrified of. They're afraid of a loaf of bread rolling down the hill. You're 300 soldiers. Nothing to fear here. And that can be very helpful. So God exposes the inherent weaknesses in the things that you fear. So then fourthly, we see here the charge to fear God and to worship him alone. So God decreases Gideon's fear of, uh, of Midian, but he also increases Gideon's fear of Yahweh. How does he do that? Well, he does it in several ways. There's actually an incredible display of God's power going on here. Uh, first of all, this is the fact that Gideon comes down to this camp at the precise moment when these two soldiers are discussing this dream. He comes at the right time to the right spot to hear a dream that God has sent and an interpretation that God has sent to those soldiers. And then look again at what the soldier says in verse 14. He says, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So there's the Midianite soldier literally saying exactly what God said in, in the first verse we read in verse 9. So God puts his words in the mouth of this enemy soldier. Again, an awesome display of God's power. Lawson Younger, in commenting on this, says the, the irony here is rich. Having the promise directly from Yahweh did not convince Gideon. His fleece signs didn't really either, but hearing it from the lips of a Midianite soldier does convince him. Now the same thing that God told me when the Midianite tells me, now I see. I see God's power in speaking uh, through the Midianite. And then furthermore, God has put the fear of, Midian, of Gideon and the fear of Gideon's God into the hearts of his enemies. So this whole thing is an, is an awesome display of God's absolute power. And so the end result is in verse 15. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped. He worshiped. Now go back to what we said before about worshiping the thing that you fear the most. This is the turning point for Gideon. Gideon fears God. He respects God. He cares about what God thinks more than anything else, and he worships God. And this is an extension of his commitment to serve God. So it says in the second half of that verse, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Now he's saying God's words right to the people, and he's committed to doing what God has called him to do. So here's the real secret to being free from the fear of the world, at least in a paralyzing way that keeps us from serving, is that we have to have a greater fear, a greater respect of God. We must care more about what God thinks of us than about what the people around us think. And this is, uh, we see this throughout the scripture. I put one example in your outline from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And Isaiah writes there, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And there was this, there was this threat of an invasion. And there was a real 
reason to be afraid of what was coming. And yet, what does God say? Follow me, fear me most of all, and do not be paralyzed by fear of the invaders. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10, verse 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. Uh, Do not fear the things, even if they kill you in this earth. It is temporary, and the Lord of glory lives forever. Well, children, you know this is very difficult because the people around you, uh, they may want you to dress like they do, to talk like they do, to watch the movies they watch, to play the games they play. And uh, if you're going to uh, avoid conflict, it may feel like, oh, we just need to go along with what everyone around me is telling me I should do. Uh, can you imagine if you, uh, someone asked you, you know, let's lie to your parents about where we're going and then we'll sneak off and do something. And I, I'm hopeful that all of the children here would say, I would never do that to my parents because number one, they would kill me. But number two, I would not want to disappoint them like that. And I think that would be what most of you would say. But do you see how God is so much greater even than our parents? And your heavenly father is the one who you must want his approval most of all. And so this is the reason why we can say no to the other things around us that may be drawing us away, that we would serve God and worship him alone. Uh, The end of the book of Ecclesiastes, which talks about all the different ways that we can look for satisfaction in life. And the book concludes like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's the summary of it. We fear God and we obey him and we experience his blessing. So fear God and worship him alone. And then finally, recognize that Jesus feared God alone to free you from the fear of the world. The problem we have is that we're actually plagued by fears and they manifest themselves in many different ways. Uh, Sometimes we fear, you know, sort of obsolescence. So we're working like crazy all the time trying to justify our existence. And as we've been talking about, sometimes the opposite thing is true. We fear failure, so we won't take any risks. We don't wanna ever have a chance of failing. So we never try to do anything that we don't already know we can do. We have everything we need from God not to fear, and yet we still fear other things. So this reminds us our hope cannot be in our ability to obey or to perform or to please God in our own efforts, but only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who didn't fear anything but God his Father. During his public ministry, you recognize Jesus faced the devil himself coming to him, tempting him, offering him, threatening him. And Jesus said, no, I love my heavenly father. Get away from me. And then Jesus had the most amazing assortment of enemies against him. And Philip has talked about this in his series on Mark. He had the religious liberals, the Sadducees. 
he had the religious conservatives, the fundamentalists, the uh, Pharisees. He had the wealthy, the scribes. He had the common people. He had the Roman government. Every conceivable group who would not agree on anything. And yet that whole group agreed on one thing. They were all there saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. If there ever was a person who had reason to be afraid of the powers of the world, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you see him crying tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane for this reason. And yet, what is his conclusion? Not my will, but your will be done. He feared his heavenly Father more than all of those other things. And because of that, he was able to go to the cross for his people. Peter describes this in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 21 to 24. And Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You see that Jesus committed himself to the heavenly father. And that's how he was able to endure his suffering. And he suffered for people like you and me. And you need to realize now you're free. You're free from all these things that you worry about. What people think of me, what are they saying about me, who's respecting me, all of this stuff. Who's going to put pressure on me. You don't have to be afraid of those things anymore because the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered them. And if you are trusting in him, you find your strength in him. I I keep asking myself, how do our brothers and sisters in East Asia do it? They go to worship every week. They know every time they do that, they're risking everything. They can be arrested, they can be fined, they can be harassed. And yet they just keep doing it. And why do they do it? Because they fear God more than they fear the government. And they love God and they worship God joyfully. And that's a wonderful picture we have here is our fear of God flowing out into our worship of God. That's why your worship is so critical. You worship what you fear the most. We have something to worship that is great and wonderful. A God who loves us, who sacrificed for us, who wants us to know he loves us, who shows us the things we're afraid of are by and large powerless in the grand scheme of things. A God who wants us to know of his great and infinite power to us so that when we come and worship, we can extol him and we can have our faith built up and be reminded it's time to go out in the world to serve a God who is with us and we don't have anything to be afraid of out in the world. 
So that's what the text is telling you. Do not fear the powers of the world. However that manifests itself in your life, don't fear them. You don't need to. But fear God and worship him alone. And he will enable you to serve him and to do that. Let's pray and give him thanks now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you teach us in your word. And we see through this event where uh, a man, a humble man, uh, who's not well known, is put in a position to do something uh, very difficult. And uh, even as he wrestles with his own fears, we see you graciously uh, coming alongside of him, uh, showing him uh, that he doesn't need to be afraid, uh, showing him who you are, and, and doing it in such a way that it leads him to worship and then to resolve to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to see that this is the same God we worship now and the same Savior. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus who did not fear, although he was opposed by every conceivable force that the world had at that day, and yet he feared you more than all. And we thank you, Lord, that he did that for his people and that Jesus' perfect obedience liberates us uh, from having to fear anything. Uh, Lord, help us, we pray, to grow. Help us to see uh, the inherent weaknesses of the things that are threatening us. Help us to see your glory and power and your goodness. And we pray, Lord, by your grace that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be able to walk faithfully uh, with you as our Lord did. We ask you to help us even in this coming week, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll sing our praise back to the Lord from Psalm 40, selection A. And this psalm, uh, this portion begins saying, many will see uh, with awe, and it's the same word uh, that we could get fear from here. I waited for the Lord, he heard, uh, he stooped and heard my cry and brought me from the pit. So uh, crying out to the Lord for rescue, the Lord puts us on a firm foundation. And then it's in verse two, stanza two, many will see with awe and so we'll trust the Lord. We, we fear him, we trust him. He is the one that makes our feet secure and guides us. Let's stand and sing our praise to the Lord. Okay. 